Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and manifest yourself as you help me and help us to call attention to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. I pray that you would do your unique work, Holy Spirit. You, you wait in the wings, as it were, of the stage. You're a spotlight operator from the back, and you shine on Jesus. And without your help, we don't see him. And if we do see him, then you did it. So please come and make Jesus the issue in this church, in the city of Mound, in the West Tonka area, in the Twin Cities, and around the world. Help us now to understand our Bibles with Jesus at the center. For Christ's sake we ask it. Amen. Over the last several weeks, it's been our privilege to explore the identity of our Savior in a preaching series entitled, The Chiefest Among 10,000, an Advent Study of the Incarnation of Jesus Christ. Anybody know where that title comes from? I thought I'd ask on the last Sunday of Advent here. The Chiefest Among 10,000? The Song of Solomon. Uh, chapter 5 and verse 10. It's from the King James Version. Uh, the bride speaking of her husband. She calls him the chiefest among 10,000. And we are the bride of Christ. And he is the chiefest among 10,000. It's the Christmas season, so we've been taken up with the answer to the question who is Jesus? And in the Evangelical Free Church of America, we hold to the biblical and the historical understanding of the answer to that question. For example, we believe in the humanity of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ is fully man, which is to say he's a real man and he's a perfect man. We not only believe in the full humanity of Christ, we also believe in the full deity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is fully God. To claim that Jesus Christ is merely a good teacher is patronizing nonsense, as C.S. Lewis said so many years ago. Jesus and the rest of the scriptures claim that he is fully God. And finally, as it relates to Christ's identity, we also believe that Jesus is God incarnate. He's one person, two natures. Now, those are the, those are the facts. That's the raw truth as it stands. Um, but what we've discovered over these last several weeks is that these doctrines matter. They are immensely practical. This is news that we can use, I guarantee you. For example, because Jesus Christ is fully man, he is able to live in our place. He is able to die in our place. He is able to show us to God and to show true humanity to us and to sympathize with us. That's all true because Jesus is fully human. At the same time, Jesus Christ is fully God. And the doctrine of the deity of Christ matters supremely. It matters supremely for salvation It matters supremely for mediation. Jesus is our mediator. He shows us what God looks like. And it matters for differentiation. In the Christian faith, in the 21st century, this matters. It differentiates Christ in a pluralistic world. 
And finally, the doctrine of the incarnation, the teaching that Jesus is one person, two natures, that's of shattering importance for us today. As we said last week, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. God became man, and he became man to become the only worthy and all-satisfying object of our worship. God became man to demonstrate humility to us, which is the queen of virtues. And God became man to point us toward the goal of sanctification, which is glorification. Now, if you were here last week, uh, we didn't take time to unfold that last application. And I'd like to do that now. I'd like to be that, that be our starting point. God became man to point us toward the goal of sanctification which is glorification. Those are two commonly misunderstood concepts, and we want to be clear. There's no reason to be unclear about this. What are we talking about when we say sanctification, glorification? Well, we can define both very simply. Sanctification is the lifelong process of becoming holy. It's that simple and it's that wonderful. Sanctification is the lifelong process of becoming holy. Um, Another way that we could say it is that sanctification is the lifelong process of becoming just like Jesus. The lifelong process of becoming just like Jesus. Now, once we have a category for sanctification, glorification can be explained in pretty short order. Glorification is just the completion of sanctification. To be more specific, glorification is that moment that begins our eternal state when Jesus returns to this earth, we receive our glorified bodies, and we walk with him forever in a sinless new heaven and new earth. That's glorification. It's the completion of sanctification. Sanctification is the lifelong process of becoming holy, the process of becoming just like Jesus. Now, that's the goal of the Christian life, and it is important that we keep the goal in front of us. That goal is unfolded many places in the New Testament. So we read in Romans 8, verses 29 to 30, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We're speaking of the same reality, but using different language. In 1 Corinthians 15, 49, Paul says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, so shall we bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. And what Paul hints at, there in 1 Corinthians 15:49 what he's hinting at there is made explicit in Ephesians 3:19 where Paul prays that the church might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all of the fullness of God that's the goal of the Christian life to be filled with all of the fullness of God. And Paul's not alone in his description of that sort. Uh, the Apostle Peter writes in 
2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, that his desire for his readers is that they would become partakers of the divine nature. Did you know that's the point of the Christian faith? That you would become a partaker of the divine nature. Or the Apostle John, clear as a bell on this. Uh, 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So when Christ appears, we will be like him. You ready for that? Do you want that? Is there anything you want more than that? Trusting that you might want that, I want us to take us to one more text that will set up our topic for this morning, and the text is 2 Corinthians 3.18. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Apostle Paul is explaining for the church what the process of sanctification looks like and how it happens. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So, beholding the glory of Christ, we become like Christ. We become What we behold. That's how worship works. That's also how idolatry works. We become what we behold. And Paul says, as we look into the eyes of Jesus, we are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. That's heartening, isn't it? It's incremental. Slight, uh, small, tiny, little miniature changes that happen to us as we stare into the face of Jesus over a lifetime. And the outcome of that lifetime shuffle-step process is that we eventually become just like Jesus. That is awesome. And we would ask the question, who brings that about? Well, We do, as we look to Jesus. Nobody can do that for you. We trust his promises. We walk toward Jesus in the obedience of the faith, and we bring it about. But we don't furnish the power, and we certainly don't get the credit for the end result. The quickening life, the agency, the muscle, and the strength of the process of sanctification come from one person. And I'll read the verse again. Transformed in his image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Who authors the process of sanctification? The Holy Spirit. Third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit wants to make you and me 
just like Jesus. And if you're interested in partnering with him, but perhaps you'd like to see his credentials, maybe his qualifications, his track record, he invites you to see his greatest work in Jesus Christ, like Jesus does too. This holiday season, Christ intends his inseparable companion to be ours as well. I love that phrase, Christ's inseparable companion, to speak of the Holy Spirit. It comes from a 21st century Puritan scholar named Joel Beakey. This holiday season, Christ intends his inseparable companion to be ours as well. Two basic points today. They both are about the person and work of the Holy Spirit, how Jesus relates to the Spirit, and how Christians relate to the Holy Spirit. So let's start with point one. Jesus Christ conquered sin and lived a perfect life through the person, presence, and power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ conquered sin and lived a perfect life through the person, presence, and power of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? I mean, is the Holy Spirit a force, like in Star Wars? Is the Holy Spirit a vapor, like a floating gas? Is the Holy Spirit an it, like in the Adams family? Cousin it? Who is this? Let's start here. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is a person. We worship one God who exists in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible is lucid on this subject. There is one and only one God, and there is a Father, and He is God. And there is a Son, and He is God. And there is a Holy Spirit, and He is God. Furthermore, the Scriptures consistently maintain that the Father is not the Son, nor is the Son the Father. And the Father is not the Spirit, and the Spirit's not the Father. And the Son and the Spirit are not one another. They are distinct. They are each fully God, and there is one God, One God in three persons, a mystery if there ever was one. St. Augustine has been quoted as saying, try to understand the Trinity, and you may lose your mind. Refuse to believe the Trinity, and you may lose your soul. So the Holy Spirit is fully God and is of one of the persons of the Trinity. He's a he, and not just an it or a force or a feeling. In John chapters 14 to 16, Jesus repeatedly refers to the Holy Spirit as He. Four different times in John's gospel, Jesus calls Him the Counselor or the Comforter or the Helper. It all depends upon your English translation. They're all wrestling with the Greek word paraclete. Uh, Some English translations actually transliterate that Greek word for you right in your English translation, paraclete. It literally means one who is called alongside That's what that means. Not only does the Holy Spirit bear titles like that, but the Holy Spirit works. He teaches. 
John 14, 26. He bears witness, John 15, 26. The Holy Spirit intercedes and prays, Romans 8, 26 and 27. And because the Holy Spirit is God, he is able to search the depths of God, 1 Corinthians 2.10. And because the Holy Spirit is God, he knows the thoughts of God, 1 Corinthians 2.11. The Holy Spirit is a gift giver. That's important to remember at Christmas time. He loves to give gifts. He knows it is better to give than to receive He gives gifts for the upbuilding of the church and ultimately for the glory of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. In Acts 16, verses 6 and 7, the Holy Spirit is said to prohibit particular human plans. He denies that certain things should happen. He refuses a certain course of action. And yet in Acts 15, 28, along with the early church, the Holy Spirit is said to endorse certain plans. The Prayer is, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, uh, the early church says. And just as you would expect of a person, the Holy Spirit can be grieved, Ephesians 4.30. He can be resisted, Acts 7.51. He can be outraged, Hebrews 10.29. And because the Holy Spirit is God, the Lord Jesus teaches us, that the Holy Spirit can even be blasphemed. Matthew 12, 31 to 32. And He is God. Let's make no mistake here. He is God. Alongside God the Father and God the Son, the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the same breath with them in very important connections. Uh, In the giving of the Great Commission, the Holy Spirit is mentioned right alongside the Father and the Son, Matthew 28. Um, In Paul's one of my favorite benedictions of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. He mentions the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together. Uh, when Peter greets the church in 1 Peter 1, verse 2, the Spirit is mentioned in connection with the Son and the Father. And then there, there are explicit places in the Bible where the Holy Spirit is actually called God. Several places. One will do. Uh, And it's the frightening account of the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira are said to have lied to the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 5 verse 3, and not one verse later the apostle Peter says to them, you have not lied to man but to God. The Holy Spirit is God. So, Now we come to the doctrine of the incarnation, how this connects to Christmas. Knowing what we know about our Trinitarian God, we are positioned to ask a question perhaps you may have never thought about posing until this moment. Here's the question. Which of the members of the Trinity should become incarnate? We all know which one did become incarnate, the Son, But why? Why not the Father? Why not the Spirit? These are deep waters, but I think we're permitted to swim in them once we have our sea legs a little bit and we understand a little bit about the Trinity. Which person of the Trinity ought to become man? The Father is not a man. The Spirit's not a man. 
Only the Son is, and He is one forever now. Why? Well, one answer is that because of the fall of man, the image of God was shattered in a bazillion pieces. And it stands to reason that the one who is the very image of the Father should take on the flesh of created beings in order to make the atonement happen. That makes sense. The image of God restores the image of God in people. Secondly, you might think about the fact that because of sin, none of us are born into right relationship with God. We are born orphaned away from God the Father. It makes sense that God's very Son, the legitimate heir of all creation, should be the one to make atonement. So, there are other reasons, but that's enough for us to see the wisdom of the incarnation of the Son. He's the image of God. He's the heir of the Father. He's the heir of all creation. Now, think about this. 2,000 years ago, the Son left His privilege in heaven. He left His divine throne. The Son departed willingly from the adoration of of angels to take on baby flesh in an out-of-the-way town in the ancient Near East 2,000 years ago. And I don't know about you, but when I think about the Incarnation, I think about the Son of God being so alone in the manger and as a boy and as a young man and as a perfect man and as a... one who dies on the cross for us, and even until the point of his resurrection, I see the Son of God as alone, utterly alone. And yet, if we would read our Bibles faithfully, we would see something fresh. We would discover something extraordinary. Jesus Christ conquered sin and lived a perfect life through the person, presence, and power of the Holy Spirit. This dawned on me as I was driving to my office one day. God sends the Son into this world. And from the moment of his conception, Christ enjoyed the fellowship of the third person of the Trinity. The whole way. He had an inseparable companion. The Father didn't send the Son alone. He would never do that to his Son. Every step of the way Christ walked in the power of the Holy Spirit. One author put it this way. The ministry of Jesus in word and deed was carried forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. In everything he did, Jesus knew in himself a mighty force that moved beyond himself. Another author put it this way. Christ's obedience in our place was real obedience. He didn't cheat by relying on his divine nature when he acted as the second Adam. He lived his life receiving and depending upon the Holy Spirit. I hope this floors you. It's big. It's really big. And it's really encouraging. It's important with reference to how we understand the person and work of Jesus, how he accomplished what he accomplished. And it's a whole lot important to us in our practical application as followers of Jesus. This holiday season, 
Christ intends his inseparable companion to be ours as well. Christ conquered sin and lived a perfect life through the person, presence, and power of the Spirit. Every step of the way, Christ walked in the Spirit. Consider six areas of his life. I'm going to give you all six at once for your outline. His incarnation, his baptism, his temptation, his miracles, his cross, his resurrection. I'll say those again. His incarnation, his baptism, his temptations, his miracles, his cross, and his resurrection. Now, were we to look up every one of these texts, I would have you here until the Christmas Eve service at 4.30 on Tuesday. So I won't do that to you. Just be aware that each of these moments, what sometimes theologians have called the Christological mysteries, each one of them is united to the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. Every step of the way, from conception, incarnation, to baptism, temptations, miracles, cross, resurrection, all of it, Christ walked in the person, presence, and power of the Spirit. One clear example of this. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14. This is worth turning to if you've never seen this before. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. In this verse of Scripture, the author is not only describing the most important event in world history, uh, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, he's also explaining how each of the members of the Trinity are involved. Here's the verse. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So God the Father sends his only Son into the world. And God the Father accepts the Son's sacrifice as Christ on the cross. God the Son offers himself willingly as Christ on the cross, a pleasing sacrifice to his Father. And the Father levels the full force of his white-hot, holy wrath against sin on his Son, on that cross. What keeps the entire creation if not the creator himself, from disintegrating during six hours on Good Friday 2,000 years ago? You know the answer. Hebrews 9.14 tells us, through the eternal spirit. Theologian Graham Cole put it this way, the cross is indeed a Trinitarian event. The Father gives up the Son The Son gave Himself up, and the Spirit kept the triune God from imploding, as it were, when the barrier of sin went up between the Father and the Son, or as the Apostle Paul says, when the Son became sin for us. Who held it together? The Holy Spirit. Yeah. Christ offered Himself without blemish to God through the eternal Spirit. Holy Spirit. Now, if that's true of the cross, just work backward and think about the rest of his life. How much more is it true of his conception, 
his incarnation, his baptism, his temptations, his resurrection. Scripture links every one of these with the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. Christ conquered sin and lived a perfect life through the person, presence, and power of the Holy Spirit. Every step of the way, Christ walked with the Spirit. That's amazing. Now let's return to our big idea this morning as we move to point two and just offer a handful of reasons why this is really good news this Christmas for us. This holiday season and into the new year, Christ intends his inseparable companion to be ours as well. (laughs) Point number two, if we truly know the Savior, we will keep in step with the spirit he sent to us. He sent him to us. If we truly know the Savior, we will keep in step with the spirit he sent to us. Now, of course, there's no way to do justice to all these applications that I'm going to give us here. I just want to introduce them. And the glory of this is that uh, so much of what we need to know about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we learn it from the Gospel of John. We especially learn it from the Gospel of John, chapters 14 to 16. In fact, even starting next week, Seth Brickley is going to unfold John chapter 7 for us, and he's going to show us some of the work of the Spirit. And then come the season of Lent, we're going to see this in full color as we study Jesus' upper room discussion with his disciples, John 13 to 17. Okay, so over the next several months, we are going to do a deep dive into what the Bible says about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. I hope that's encouraging to you. So let's just do this. I want to give you six applications, and we're just going to dwell on one of them as we close. Start the discussion for us. If we truly know the Savior, we will keep in step with the Spirit that he sent to us, resisting temptation and thus killing our sin, cultivating the fruit of the Spirit, embracing him in our weakness and sufferings, developing our spiritual gifts, living for the advance of the gospel. I'm going to run out of fingers here. Praying for new birth, which is another way of talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit into union with Christ. If we truly know the Savior, we will keep in step with the Spirit He sent to us, resisting temptation and killing our sin, cultivating the fruit of the Spirit, embracing Him in our weakness and sufferings, developing our spiritual gifts, living for the advance of the gospel, praying for the new birth, baptism into union with Christ. Now, it feels cruel and unusual to leave any of these unpacked. It's like a gift you don't even open. But I'll trust that you'll do some opening maybe. Open your Bible and and look some of these up in the weeks ahead. Unpacking the implications of these texts for our lives. All six of these aren't only biblical. They're specifically linked to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But if I had to zero in on one of these... Just one that is mission critical for our congregation, it would be the fifth application. Now, don't get me wrong, we are in desperate need of all of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, everything the third person of the Trinity offers us. But in my opinion, the single ministry of the Holy Spirit, the one gift 
I long for him to give to our church is number five. Evangelistic intensity. Or as the wife of one Puritan pastor once said, to be infinitely and insatiably greedy for the conversion of souls. I've used that phrase for us before. Are you, am I, are we infinitely greedy and insatiably greedy for the conversion of souls? If we truly know the Savior, we will keep in step with the Spirit that He sent to us, living for the advance of the gospel. In closing, would you turn with me to the gospel according to John, chapter 20, verse 19. Gospel of John, chapter 20, beginning in verse 19, and I'll read to verse 22. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. This text is spectacular. In these four verses, we have something our church, every church, needs very much. Um, In this moment of redemptive history, the Savior is risen, but the disciples don't know it yet. They are huddled together behind locked doors for fear of unbelievers. Hear this. The fear of man is crippling the witness of the disciples right now. Verse 19, the doors being locked for fear of the Jews. God does not want this state of affairs for his people. He doesn't want us to be afraid or ashamed. So, Jesus appears to them. He shows them his hands and his side, and it makes them glad, the text says, when they see him. And then we have John's equivalent of the Great Commission in verse 21. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And don't miss verse 22. What's the key to slaying the fear factor in evangelism? What's the key? It's verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Just recognize, this isn't Pentecost. This is the Great Commission from John's perspective. Jesus is enacting prophecy. This is going to come in the days ahead. What does all this mean for us? Well, it means minimally this. Jesus is alive. And if you're a Christian today, you have the third person of the Trinity living inside of you. And he's at work. He is glorifying Jesus. Nothing will stop him from making much of Jesus. He is convicting the world of sin, and he lives inside you. He is able to regenerate sinners and baptize them into union with Christ. The Holy Spirit is able to adopt people into the family of God. 
And as you follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit will indeed indwell and illuminate and guide and equip and empower you for Christ-like, humble service and powerful, loving, fear-dispelling, God-glorifying evangelism. And what's our message? Well, I can share it right now. There is a God, and he is a creator and a king and a judge over this world. We are part of his creation, which makes us creatures. We are image bearers, but we are image-bearing rebels doomed to destruction. The wages of our sin is death, eternal death. But 2,000 years ago, and we memorialize it in just a few days, Jesus Christ took on human flesh, and he lived the life of a Savior. He is the risen Lord, and he is our treasure. Our response is very simple. We need to repent. We need to turn from our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ. Will you this morning, if you haven't, will you turn from your sin? Will you place all of your faith in Jesus Christ and be born again? That's the message. That's the message that you can share with people that you love this Christmas. It's as simple as four steps. God, man, Christ, response. This holiday season, Christ intends his inseparable companion to be ours as well. Jesus Christ conquered sin, and he lived a perfect life through the person, presence, and power of the Holy Spirit. Every step of the way, Christ walked in the Spirit. And if we truly know the Savior, we will, to use the language of Paul in Ephesians 5, keep in step with the Spirit he sent to us. The reasons are legion, not least of which is that we want to live for the advance of the gospel. We want to be spirit-filled, Christ-proclaiming people. And we can do it because if we know Jesus, we are indwelt by that person. We have his power. We know his presence. Christmas Eve, we're going to gather to sing the praises of the incarnate King, 4.30. I hope you join us in this sanctuary. And then one week from today, as I mentioned, our assistant pastor, Seth Brickley, will step into this pulpit and lead us back into our study of the gospel according to John, picking up in chapter 7. Right now, let's pray. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. Father, indeed, we do thank you for sending your Son Lord, this Christmas should see something born in all of us, resurrected in many of us. I pray, Father, that your church would keep in step with the Spirit. I pray that you would help all of us to live in the power and presence 
of the person of the Holy Spirit, just as you did, Jesus. I pray that we would be people that point to you. We thank you for this Christmas. We look forward to these days. May we use them and take every opportunity for the the days are evil to call attention to your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.